I find it interesting sometimes to think about the difference between the stuff that I seem to remember, like the stuff that sticks in my brain and stays there and the stuff that just kind of flows through like a sieve, you know, like we all have this thing, right? Where we remember some stuff just comes easily and other stuff you just can't grab a hold of. And I find it funny. My wife finds it uh, not so much because it's often, you know, like I can't remember what chores she assigned to me on a Saturday, or I can't remember that she's going to get a haircut, or I can't remember, you know, that our Mother's Day has come and gone. That's the stuff I forget, right? But here's the stuff I remember. About 20 years ago, my brother told me a joke about a Jewish guy named Moshe who went to the synagogue every Sabbath to pray. And every Sabbath that he was in the synagogue, Moshe would pray to God that he would win the lottery. And he'd stand before his God and he'd say, Hashem, please, I've been a pious Jew, please allow me to win the lottery. And that week would go by and Moshe would not win the lottery. So he'd go back the next Sabbath and he'd pray again. Hashem, please, you know, allow me to win the lottery. And this happened week after week and month after month, eventually year after year. And, and Moshe got very frustrated until one Saturday at, at uh, Sabbath service at the synagogue in absolute desperation and frustration, whatever, he just cried out to God and he said, he said, Hashem, I don't understand. He says, I've been a pious Jew for all my life. What does it take for me to win the lottery? And the heavens opened and the voice of God came down and said to Moshe, Moshe, give me a chance. Buy a ticket. <laughs> it's dumb, right? I don't, I don't know why God was the one who sounded Jewish. <laughs> I guess God's Jewish. That's my prophetic word for this morning. But it's, <laughs> if you were here a couple months ago, we did a whole series where we talked about prayer. We talked about what prayer is and how we pray and the spirit behind what we pray and what prayer does in us and in our lives as we pray and and so on. And, and in that series, we explored over five weeks the various aspects of the Lord's Prayer. Trying to understand what I am coming to believe is one of the central acts of Christian spirituality. One of the most formative things that we can do to pray ourselves into the image of Jesus. The early church was commanded to pray this prayer, the Lord's Prayer, three times a day. And I wonder, I hope, I pray that since our series that many in our community have made a more of an effort to incorporate the Lord's Prayer into the rhythms of our spirituality. But we, we studied the Lord's Prayer as the fundamental, the basic description of what it looks like to live in a relationship with God. Our relationship with God. We pray our Father in heaven because our relationship with God is rooted in the infinite love of a God who is interested and involved like a perfect divine parent who also so just so happens to sit on the throne of the universe and be infinitely strong and capable and able to take care of us. We live in relationship with an all-loving, all-powerful God who cares for us. And we pray, hallowed be your name, recognizing that the fundamental goal of life is that God's name would be hallowed, that God would show up in our lives and in our world in such a way that he would reveal his goodness and his love and his beauty and his holiness 
um, in such a way that people would run to him rather than running from him. And so we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven as a commitment that we are going to live our lives as God's will-doing, kingdom-coming people, as conduits of God's love and joy and hope and beauty and peace and love and abundance and hope and healing in the world. So that his name would be hallowed as the infinitely loving and powerful divine parent that he is. And then we pray at the end that God would give us the things that we need to be the people and the community that God has called us to be. We pray, give us our bread, God, meet our basic human needs for food and clothing and shelter, for health and for employment and for family and friends. God, don't give us too much, but be, meet the basic needs that we have in order to survive and thrive as human beings. We pray, give us forgiveness as we forgive other people. Don't just forgive us, God. Forgive us in, when we fail to be the people you need us to be in the same way that we forgive each other when we fail each other to be the people that we need each other to be. And we pray for protection from testing and trial and temptation from what we call thousand degree circumstances that put our faith to the test, um, that tempt us to lose focus on Christ, to lose faith in Christ, to wander from Christ and to fall into sin. And we pray that prayer often as our fundamental recommitment to the life that God has called us into in relationship with himself. And so I would love it if we could pray this prayer together this morning as we get into opening uh, the scriptures together and hearing the teaching of Jesus again. I ask you that you pray this prayer with me. The words uh, will be on the screen as we pray. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Now, the reason I wanted to open this morning by thinking back a couple months to our series that we called The Prayer Revolution is because this morning we're beginning a brand new series that we're calling The Life Revolution that is actually intended to build on top of that series on the Lord's Prayer because as we go back to the material in the Sermon on the Mount starting this morning and for the next seven weeks, we are, I think, entering into a section of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' most famous sermon, where Jesus goes on to provide commentary on what it looks like for us to live lives that are consistent with the prayer that we pray whenever we pray the Lord's Prayer. That in effect... If we're going to be the kind of people who pray the Lord's prayer and mean it, we're going to have to be the kind of people who live a certain kind of lifestyle in order for God to be able to answer the prayers that we've prayed. It's kind of like Moshe at the synagogue, right? If you're going to stand before God and ask that he do certain things in your life, you have to, in your life, make certain choices that enable God to answer your prayers. You have to live a life that has integrity to what you're praying, that is consistent with what it is you've asked God for. 
And so in the next four weeks, we're going to explore the lifestyle component that goes along with praying the various prayer requests of the Lord's Prayer. For example, when Jesus says, you know, pray your kingdom come. If we're going to be the kind of people who pray your kingdom come, we have to be the kind of people who are okay when our kingdom goes. We can't pray for God's kingdom and then work for our kingdom. It doesn't work that way. If we're going to be the kind of people who pray, God, give us bread, we have to be the kind of people who will trust him and have faith that he's actually going to provide instead of worrying and be anxious and stressed and, and actually unsure of whether God will be faithful to us. Faith precludes worry. If we're going to be the kind of people who pray, forgive us like we forgive other people, we have to be the kind of people who are willing to forgive other people rather than being judgmental and hard. If we're going to be the kind of people who pay, pray, you know, protect us from temptation. We have to, in our lives, be the kind of people who refuse to flirt with sin. See, when you pray this prayer, you're committing yourself to living a certain kind of life that has integrity, that is consistent with the prayer that you pray. So we begin this morning in the life revolution, looking at Matthew chapter 6, verse 19, where Jesus says, do not... Store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. There's a word play in the Greek language, actually. The, the word store up is actually the same as the word treasures in the Greek language. It's, you hear it in English if you were to talk about storing in a storage place all of your stores, the things that you store up, right? It's that same word that gets used in various ways. You could, Jesus could be translated saying, don't stash for yourself a stash here on earth. That's kind of the heart of it. And then eventually, because the things that we store, the things that we save and stockpile and stash, those things are usually valuable things. The word eventually developed this nuance of treasure, of something that has value, something that has incredible worth. And what Jesus is saying in relation to the Lord's prayer and how we live is if you're going to be the kind of person who prays your kingdom come, you cannot simultaneously be the kind of person who treasures your treasures here on earth. Who lives your life. If you're going to live your life to be God's will-doing kingdom coming person, if that's going to be the goal of your life is to be the conduit of God's kingdom, of his life and love and peace and beauty and wholeness and healing and hope and whatever, if that's what you want to live for, you cannot also simultaneously live a life where you're building your own kingdom of wealth and luxury and comfort. Jesus says those things are incompatible with each other. Now, I want to be really clear, and I'm going to say this at the outset, two things, just so that we don't get confused at all with what Jesus is saying, what he's not saying. Number one, Jesus is not saying that wealth is evil. He's not saying that. He's not saying that you shouldn't work to have enough to provide for your family. He's not saying that you shouldn't be wise in how you manage the finances that he has given you and even save for the future. He's not saying that. He's not saying you shouldn't enjoy the things that God has given you, the wealth, possessions, and money that God has blessed you with. He's not saying that. In other places, the Bible says all of those things, that we need to earn enough to provide for our families. We need to save for the future and be wise and responsible. We need to enjoy the stuff God has given us because it's a gift. The Bible says that and Jesus is not denouncing that. Secondly, what I want to say is I've not figured this out. Uh, a week ago, I disembarked 
from a cruise ship where I'd spent seven days sailing around the Caribbean, wondering the whole time just how much I was already violating the text that I was going to preach on the next Sunday. I haven't figured out what it looks like to reject a life of built around wealth and luxury and comfort and accumulation. But this is Jesus' point. What Jesus is saying is that if you are going to be a li- live a life that is devoted to God's kingdom coming, you cannot simultaneously live a life that is devoted to accumulating all sorts of stuff here on earth for yourself. That's the key phrase, for yourself. Jesus isn't speaking against wealth. He doesn't say don't store up treasures on earth. He says don't store for yourself treasures on earth. It's greed that's the issue. It's the accumulation of stuff that I intend to use exclusively for myself or even primarily for myself or that is for me. Jesus says if you're going to live a your kingdom coming kind of life, the only kind of accumulation you're going to do is you're going to accumulate stuff that's used for the kingdom. And he provides right away, actually, in the text, he provides the rationale for why you cannot and would not want to live that way. In fact, right in the verse, he says, he says, don't store up for yourself. Don't treasure for yourself treasures on earth where moth and vermin destroy and thieves break in and steal. In the ancient world, there was three ways to save up. Um, in a world without banks, you could buy expensive garments. There were textiles and, and dye colors and so on that came from very rare and far away places. And so the garments were very expensive. And in a world where fashion did not change every three months so that we buy a new wardrobe four times a year, thank you, 21st century marketing. Um, in a world where fashion doesn't change, you could buy a garment and put it in your closet as a financial investment and pass it on to your kids and it would increase in value over time. So you could buy garments. You could store up grain. See, in a part of the world where famines were not uncommon and the rain was undependable, independable, not dependable, um, the person, when the famine came, who sat on the largest stockpile of grain, that person was the richest. Because they could sell off their grain, supply and demand at exorbitant prices, and they could earn a fabulous amount of money by stockpiling their grain. Or thirdly, You could just buy gold. Some things never change. Um, But you would buy physical gold and you'd store it in a a storage closet in a pot in your house. The storage closet's not in the pot. The pot is in the storage closet in your house. Or you would bury it in a field. So you get these stories in the Bible of people stealing garments and then lying about it. You get stories about people building bigger barns to fill with grain. You get stories about people stumbling upon a treasure in a field. And it's because that's how you store up wealth in the ancient world. But Jesus says, here's the problem with treasuring those kinds of treasures, with storing up that kind of wealth, stashing your stash in terms of worldly wealth. It's just a dumb thing to do because those kinds of investments never last. Jesus says, when you invest in things like garments, it only takes one moth to empty your portfolio. So all the moth has to do is get into your closet, nibble a hole in the garment, and the entire thing is worthless. If you store up your your wealth in the form of grain, one family of mice can literally eat you out of house and home. They get into your barn, and when the next famine comes, you've got nothing. You can buy gold, but as soon as somebody learns the location of your gold, they can dig it up and 
walk away or dig through the clay walls of your home and grab the pot that contains the gold and run off. In the ancient world, thieves in Jerusalem or in Israel were called diggers for that reason. Material wealth doesn't last. We just learned that six years ago, didn't we? The markets crash and housing bubbles burst. In the 80s, we learned that inflation can nibble away at your savings until you have virtually nothing left. That our, our uh, vehicles rust and our devices get obsolete and one flood or fire can ruin an entire lifetime of accumulation. You can store up all you want. It just doesn't last. And even if you can make it last till your dying breath, what you learn in that exact moment is that like in the game of Monopoly, you can win the game, but after the game's done, all the pieces go back in the box and you walk away with nothing. You can realize that you spent your whole life storing up stuff on earth and you did nothing to store up treasure in heaven. Which in the next verse, Jesus says, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth. He says, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves break in and steal. Jesus says, instead of living this lifestyle driven by this greedy hunger to accumulate wealth and luxury and comfort and to, to store up stuff for yourself on earth, he says, live the kind of life that I'm describing. A beatitude kind of life like we talked about a year ago. A life that rejects anger and lust. A life that fights for marriage and never fights for your rights. A a life that chooses the truth and generosity and love. Even loving your enemies. A life devoted to fasting and to prayer. And especially in this case to giving. A life that is committed to taking what God has entrusted to you and investing it in being a conduit for God's love to break into the world and to bring life and joy and beauty and hope and justice and peace and healing to the world. Live that kind of life and God will reward you with a reward in eternity that will never disappear, that no one can ever take away, that endures forever Jesus says the only investment that makes sense is to take what God has given you and use it to accumulate heavenly wealth by the way you spend it to bring God's kingdom here on earth that one fundamental shift in how we live you would not believe the impact that that has on every part of your spiritual life with God. He he says in Matthew verse 621, he says, for, so this is the reason, right? Don't invest your treasures here in making your life wealthy and comfortable and luxurious and so on. Don't, Don't invest treasures that way. Invest them by being compassionate, kind and generous for the sake of the kingdom, because of Jesus, for Jesus, in Jesus, for the sake of Jesus. Um, invest them in bringing God's kingdom here on earth so that you get heavenly reward. The reason you'd make that choice is because where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. I think we often read this verse backwards. We read it as though what Jesus is saying is where your um, heart is, there your treasure will be. As though Jesus' point is that your money follows the things that you care about, which is true. It's true. If, if I were to gain a copy of your monthly bank statement or your monthly visa statement or if you were to gain a copy of mine, 
We could look at the kinds of things that we spend money on, our houses and our education, our retirement, entertainment and dining and vacations and vehicles and trailers and whatever it is. Um, You can look at the things that we spend money on and know what the other person cares about. That is true, but that's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus isn't saying your money follows your heart. Jesus is saying your heart follows your money, that you will care about the things you invest in. And you know that's true. You know it's true. Some of you have invested in stocks and you watch NBC or CNN or MSNBC or whatever where there's a stock ticker on the bottom. You don't care about every stock and every number that goes by on the bottom of the screen. If you've invested in the stock market, you care only about the stocks that you've put money in. You don't care what everybody else is doing unless you're going to invest in them. Some of you have bet on ProLine, not that I necessarily endorse betting on ProLine, but some of you have bet on sporting events and you watch SportsCenter not to randomly find out the scores of all the games. You only care about very specific games. You care about the games you put money on. How do we get our kids to care about their education? How do we get our kids to care about their possessions, to care about their cars? You make them pay for it. Why? Because their heart follows their money. You will care about the things that you have invested in. And Jesus says, at the end of the day, this is the bottom line. Instead of living for wealth and comfort and luxury and accumulating stuff here on earth, invest that in building the kingdom. Take what God has given you and invest it in compassion and generosity to see God's life and love and healing and hope flood the world because it'll fundamentally transform your heart. If you want to love God more, if you want to be more passionate about your faith in Jesus Christ, if you want to be more excited and more devoted to living a life of following him, if you want to be more into the kingdom of God and what God is doing, doing in the world, then take the financial resources that God has given to you and invest them in what God is doing in the world. And let me be really clear. I don't care if you give the money here. This isn't about you giving your money to me or to us or to the church or whatever. I don't care where you give the money. Don't give it to us. If you don't trust us, don't give it to us. We don't want your money. What I want for you is for you to have a heart that is deeply and passionately in love with God and deeply committed in a wholehearted way to following Jesus Christ and to living for the kingdom. And Jesus says, if that's going to happen in your life, it's going to happen to the degree to which you've been able to walk away from a lifestyle of accumulation and wealth into a lifestyle of investing in what God is doing in the world with everything that God has given you. That's how you grow your heart for Christ. At least one significant way fundamentally transforms your relationship with God to to transform the way you look at the world in fact that's where Jesus goes next verse 22 he says the eye is the lamp of the body he says if your eyes are healthy your whole body will be full of light but if your eyes are unhealthy your whole body will be full of darkness and if then the light within you is darkness how great is that darkness it's kind of an odd hard left turn that we go from examining our financial statements to a bit of an ophthalmology pop quiz. But but Jesus is talking about our perspective, how we see the world. He says the eye, the way we see things, that's like a lamp to the body. You open your eyes and light floods your interior world. Your world, your soul is illuminated because you can see the world for the way it really is. But if your eyes aren't healthy, that word in Greek just means singular, 
You know, you have single vision as opposed to double vision. You have clarity of vision as opposed to having cataracts. If you have unhealthy eyes, if you don't see properly, then you can't see the world for the way that it is. And if you are completely blind, if you have no sight whatsoever, then without assistance, you'll be fundamentally unable to navigate the reality of life the way the world is. Your inability to see clearly affects your ability to live successfully. Not materially successfully. I just mean successfully as a human being to live the life God has created you to live. And what's interesting is that in the Jewish culture, the idea of having healthy eyes, the word healthy came to mean something not just you know, clear and singular. It meant in a physical sense. It meant spiritually to see with integrity, to see with compassion, to see with generosity. Jesus says the person who looks at the world with compassionate, generous eyes that have integrity to your followership of Jesus Christ, the person who looks at the world through generous eyes is a person who sees clearly. They're the person who walks in the light and is able to successfully navigate life the way life is meant to be lived. It's the person who has unhealthy eyes. The word actually literally is evil which in the Jewish context was often translated greedy or stingy or selfish. You look at the world through greedy eyes. You look at the world through selfish eyes. You look at the world through covetous eyes, grasping eyes, grabbing at things for yourself. You look at the world from that perspective. You have an unhealthy, evil perspective on the world. I'm not calling you evil. I'm just saying that's what the text says. You have an evil perspective, an anti-Christ perspective on life and it will make you fundamentally unable to live life the way God has created it to live in fact it'll plunge your inner world into darkness and you will be unable to navigate God's world the way it was meant to be lived how you look at the world and this is fundamentally important to us I think in the 21st century because what we see over 10,000 times a day are advertisements that are encouraging us to purchase more, to accumulate, that all have the same message. You need my shampoo. You need my device. You need my pair of jeans in order to be full and whole and complete as a human being. Without what I'm offering, you will be sad and miserable and lonely and incomplete as a person. You need to buy to be human. And ad agencies all over the world, they, they employ bright neuroscientists to figure out how to jerry-rig their advertisements to bypass the conscious and to tap into our subconscious brain to convince us that we need to buy what it is that they're selling, that we can't be content with what we have. If we were all content, you ever think about this? If we were all content, the entire economy would collapse. Our Western culture depends on us continuing to buy, to believe that it is normal to want and need and own and acquire and hold and accumulate and purchase and upgrade. Our lifestyle depends on us seeing the world as a gigantic vending machine where everything is for sale. And you look at the world through those eyes, Jesus says, and you are plunging yourself into spiritual darkness and you will, you will bumble and fumble and stumble your way through life, spiritually speaking. 
but you look at the world through God's eyes, through eyes of integrity, that have integrity with your conviction that you want God's kingdom to come. You look at the world through, through God's eyes of compassion and justice and generosity. You begin to see the world, to see life the way God sees life, that every moment of every day is an opportunity to love the God who loves you with an infinite love that we've spent the last five weeks unpacking. That every moment of every day is an opportunity to pray for and live into, to experience and participate in and propagate God's kingdom coming in the world. Every moment is an opportunity for you to become the channel through which God's love and hope and healing and life and beauty um, and peace invade this broken, hungry, desperate world. You begin to look at life and at the world through those lenses. And Jesus says, now you begin to see things for the way they really are. And now, because you see life clearly, you'll be able to choose well whom you are going to serve with your life. He says in verse 24, no one can serve two masters. Either you'll hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Jesus says, listen, at the end of the day, everybody serves someone with their life. You're either gonna serve God or you're gonna serve money. He could have said family. He could have said kids. He could have said marriage. He could have said job. He could have said career or popularity or sex or romance or whatever marriage. He could have said any number of things. You cannot serve God and something else. I think we try to do this all the time. We read this language of serving masters. We read it through our employment lenses and we think, well, well, I'll moonlight. I'll work two jobs. I'll work for God with this part of my life and I'll work for money. I'll work for myself with this part of my life. I'll work for greed with this part of my life. You can't do it. You, in the ancient world, a slave was committed to their master 24-7. Their responsibility full-time at all moments, at every moment of every day, was to be fundamentally committed to doing whatever their master asked them to do, going where their master asked them to go, being what their master asked them to be, and doing what their master asked them to do, no matter what, every moment of every day. And you cannot make that commitment to two masters at the same time. How can you be available 24-7 to two different people to two competing sets of instructions to two different sets of responsibility to two conflicting sets of values to two opposing instructions how can you answer two different bells at the same time it would be like trying to be married to two people at once marriage is a 24 7 commitment to submitting my life in love to the best interest of my spouse you can't do that to two people at the same time it's impossible jesus doesn't say it's hard he doesn't say you shouldn't do it. He said, you can't do it. If you're trying to serve something other than God, you are not serving God. You're only serving the other thing. And it's because at some point you have to choose. Jesus says, you'll love the one and hate the other, be devoted to the one, despise the other. He means when the priorities, when the instructions, when the lifestyles begin to conflict, you have to choose which one you're going to go with. Because God's demands and greed's demands are fundamentally incompatible with each other. God demands that we love other people. Greed demands that we love ourselves. God demands that we carry our cross. Greed demands that we live in comfort. God demands that we sacrifice. Greed demands that we indulge. God demands that we uh, work, for our, or work for others. Greed demands that we work for ourselves. God demands 
that we give. Greed demands that we take. God demands that we care. Greed demands that we don't. You cannot serve both. You cannot be committed to living a lifestyle of God's kingdom coming, of being a vessel of God's love and life and liberty and freedom and hope and healing in the world and be committed to serving yourself and expanding your life of comfort and luxury and wealth and abundance in the world. It's fundamentally impossible. At the end of the day, you have to choose. So the question is, what are you going to choose? I was confronted with this choice a couple years ago in some ways. And like I said, I still grapple with this. But I remember preaching a couple years ago, I was going to preach a message on how our stuff gets in the way, a little bit like this. Our stuff gets in the way of us being committed to um, doing things God's way that God wants us to deaccumulate in order to use our stuff for his kingdom and so on. And, and so the challenge at the end of the message, as we've challenged people a few times before, is I want you to get rid of something and use the what you get, you know, sell something and what you get from it, use it to advance God's kingdom. And somebody on staff said, that's an awesome challenge. What are you going to get rid of? And my answer, honest, my answer was, what do you mean? <laughs> and they said, well, you're not going to stand up there and tell everybody else. You're going to stand up there and you're going to be the example. And so I started to pray about it. And God said, I need you to sell your motorcycle. This is something that gets in the way of your devotion to me. You care too much about your bike and it makes it hard for you to care about me. And I end up being confronted with a choice in that moment. Who am I going to serve, God or my stuff? And in that moment, for that moment, God gave me the strength uh, to choose him. And I sold the bike to a poor family who otherwise had uh, limited means for transportation. They were a ministry family who served Christ in Thailand. And, and then I ended up taking the money and donating it to a place where God was doing amazing things and bringing compassion, healing, and justice into the world. And let me be deathly honest with you. I've hardly missed the bike and become more committed and devoted to what God is doing in the world than I ever was before. It didn't change everything, but it changed something. Because God invited me to choose this day who I was going to serve. You cannot pray, your kingdom come, unless you're going to be the kind of person who is okay and content to watch your kingdom Go. What are you going to choose? Let's pray. Father, I don't know if anything in our world, in our culture, has as much of a grip on our hearts and lives as our money. That's probably always been true. It's probably why there's more uh, verses about money in the Bible than just about anything else. God, give us the strength in these coming moments of quiet to be honest and confess our addiction to accumulation to you. To be honest in our hearts about how that gets in the way of us living for your kingdom. And God, would you give us the strength by your spirit to repent, to walk away from this lifestyle of accumulation, of building our kingdom in order to be fully devoted to building your kingdom. And would you grow our hearts 
as a result. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.